good afternoon and good evening, wherever and whenever you may be, and welcome to episode 103, 103 Dalmatians. Dang it, it doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> Unless they make one. <laughs> it's so annoying. I missed 101 and 102 because I wasn't hosting and you guys got to do that. So it's just not fair. It's not fair. Anyway, I'm a modern woman. And I'm Clarice Lockgrey. We are once again a clan of two. And oh we are God. quested to deliver this podcast this is the way. I'm definitely the Grogu, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> we figure out our own signet um, and what that looks like. Um, All but... I've been doing this week is, you know, when Grogu goes, <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I do. I am aware of that. <laughs> Hannah will be back next week. Uh, so we will once again be reunited and it feels so good. But until then, this week, Clarice chats to writer-director Zach Braff, he of Scrubs fame, about what makes a good person, while we review the Florence Pugh starring addiction drama. We also talk bullet balletics in John Wick Chapter 4 and Freudian orgies in Infinity Pool, while Clarice also sits down with breaking director Abby Damaris Corbin to chat about working with the phenomenal John Boyega, FN2187, is that right? Yes, I think so, yes. yeah. <laughs> FNT187, Finn himself. Uh, <sighs> plus, in our hot take with the middling reception to Shazam, Fury of the Gods, and Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, we ask if people are finally getting the superhero fatigue. Mm, is the question that is on many people's minds. Also on many people's minds, I'm sure it's on Carissa's mind, The Mandalorian <gasps> uh, this week best episode of the season so far ahmed best welcome back good to have you back in such an amazing role he is the dude who saved Rogan from all the 66 i did not have black jedi hero on my bingo card this week but damn it we got it and i was pumped it was so nice it just felt so beautiful like the whole sequence and i loved that because of the time period it was like it's meant to take place and it was kind of shot like like the prequels were (laughs) and like even the 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 way he was moving his lightsaber was very prequels ish i Mm -hmm. loved that whole sequence it was so beautifully done and like i don't know i mean we could get into the whole like does this make up for how fucking awful (laughs) the treatment was you know no but i i think it's still such a beautiful moment and i'm so happy for him yeah absolutely um really really cool to see um the rest of the episode was also really good although i have questions about bo katan's ship and how big it is to fit in all the people (laughs) because (laughs) does it it expand is that like a magical thing because i would not have called that those creatures being able to be stored <laughs> in that ship on the way back to base. And I, the, <laughs> the my favorite bit, I mean, the Armour Fest thing was beautiful, but my favorite bit of the episode, and maybe the, one of the funniest things I've ever seen in Star Wars, is that <laughs> Din has, like, barely been with that Mandalorian, back with the Mandalorian clan, oh. and he is immediately like, Grogu. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get my baby a gun. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like immediately, 
at the way that the little like um dart shooter is too big for his arm yeah. and Bo-Katan's like having to strap it on his tiny little arm and it's just like make my baby fight <laughs> it's so yeah. thin and it's so like relatable and I just love him <laughs> yeah that was great that was funny I love that. It's just it's really interesting what they're doing with Din and Bo-Katan because it feels like they make a really good team, but they also kind of have like a similar strong claims to leadership. Should that be where I think this is going? Because, for instance, in this episode, Din is the uh, Mandalorian who saves the child, but they would not have known where to find the child without Bo-Katan tracking the monster back to its lair. So there's stuff like that. And like, you know, they, they both bathed in the living waters of Mandalore and been redeemed. But Bo-Katan is the only one who saw the mythosaur in the living waters and Matt and Din Jowin didn't. And, and Bo-Katan made sure to not tell Din about that, even though Din probably should have asked like, follow-up questions when <laughs> not in his nature <laughs> not in his nature that was very true to character again very relatable man i love him <laughs> but this is all very interesting to me and mm. it feels like this season is more concerned with character more specifically din jowen and bogatan over plot and so far i'm into that me too i really enjoy the dynamic and i i like the sort of yeah, the mystery around Bo-Katan's motivations, um, because she is she is a really empathetic and sympathetic character, but at the same time, it's like she's fucking up to something. Yeah, she is. <laughs> like she, you know, we know exactly what her aims and her goals are, and we know how sort of ruthless she is in wanting to pursue those goals. So, I could go either way, and that's what's really exciting about her storyline. Um, is she can make the right choices or she can make the very wrong choices. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. We got some really great TV joining The Mandalorian. Uh, very, very soon. Succession is about to air the day that this comes out. Final season. Cannot wait. Um, I've heard really good things about the first sort of uh, few episodes. Uh, so that's good. Ted Lasso, of course, is back as well. Um, yeah. Yellow start. Jackets, can I shout out Yellow Jackets? Because I watched the first six episodes of season two. And mm. fucking hell, Melanie Linsky. <laughs> <laughs> she has two two separate monologues in that show that I was like, if they don't give this goddamn woman an Emmy <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> for that performance, I'm so I'm so obsessed with her. She's so fucking good. She is good. Like that and The Last of Us. Like mm. it's this is the year of Melanie Linsky. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. I look. I need to catch up with Yellow Jackets. I think I started season one. I just never finished it for some reason. Um, it's very to... gruesome. I feel like you maybe wouldn't like it because it's very weird. <laughs> <laughs> no, weird stuff. I can. You know. I can get there. Um, even though, you know, we're about to talk about the weirdest movie of the year so far. <laughs> well, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like the, the, the full-on horror, scary stuff that I find I, I, I sometimes have a difficult time with. Um, yeah. So, so, yeah. But, you know, as 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 we've discussed in the last couple of weeks, I'm becoming a brave little boy. And, then, yes. you know, I, I am getting better at that. So, you know. Okay. Well, watch Yellow Jackets and report back. I shall. I shall. 
Uh, but speaking of reporting back, we have some reports to get to, three films to discuss, a couple of Clarice interviews, fun, jam-packed episode this week. And let's get it started with a good person. Aren't you engaged to Nathan Adams? I was, yeah. I heard what happened to you, the accident. The woman that died was about to be my sister-in-law. Hi, Dan. I'm worried about you. I want my life back. I want my child back. I need help. I know. Allison, don't run away now because of me. There are thousands of meetings. I'll find another one. Well, somehow you found your way to this one. Florence Pugh. She's the best. <laughs> She's so good when she acts. <laughs> And when she cries, it makes me cry because she doesn't hold back Florence Pugh. <laughs> that was a Clarice Fox, the original, debuting at number one in the Fate of Black charts. I, I, I'll, I'll just tell the listeners. I, the song I wrote down, I forgot, I've forgotten how it goes. <laughs> so I had to improvise. But this is A Good Person, uh, which follows Alison, played by... Florence Pugh. <laughs> um, it's a very sad movie, though, so I'm sorry for singing a, a jaunty yeah. song. <laughs> um, but she does play Alison, a young woman whose world falls apart when she survives an unimaginable tragedy whilst in recovery for an opioid addiction and unresolved grief. She forms an unlikely friendship with her would-be father-in-law, Daniel, that gives her a fighting chance to put her life back together and move forward. Written and directed by Zach Breff, it stars Florence Pugh. Molly Shannon, uh, Shinaza Uche, Celeste O'Connor, and Morgan Freeman. So I spoke to Zach Braff. Um, it's a really interesting conversation about, uh, like, it was interesting to talk to him about, like, a garden, garden State and kind of the legacy of that movie, which to me, like, Garden State was, like, the movie of that era. Mm. <laughs> like, if I think of that time and the sort of, like, indie filmmaking and the trends that grew out of it, I feel like you can trace so much of it back to, to what Zach Braff did in Garden State. So, it was, yeah, it was really cool to talk to him about that. Um, and, like, the the how he deals with opioid addiction in this movie, which I thought was really interesting. And then, yeah, we talked about a lot of serious stuff, and then I snuck in a question about Star Wars at the end. <laughs> <laughs> so please enjoy that. Um, but here is my conversation with Zach Braff. So welcome to the Fate of Black podcast, and also congratulations on this film. I Thank mean, you. I wanted to start off with what really struck me about it is the opioid epidemic is still so like it's so raw and it's so overwhelming because mm. it's been going on since the 90s but yeah I feel like we're only really now at a point where we're starting to reckon with it yeah and so I wondered um for you having that element of humor to it mm. do you think that it helps kind of bring it home to people who might actually feel quite kind of on the outside of it or alienated by the issue. I think adding humor to, to anything makes makes talking about difficult issues more digestible. I mean, the film is about a couple of serious 
issues, including the opioid epidemic. But if you, it, it, it can be too maudlin um, for people to digest, I think. They don't want to face that. But if you fold, if you fold um, in some humor and levity and a relief for people, I think they, they will watch it in a different way. At least that's my hypothesis. Yeah, I feel like some of my like earliest exposure to that kind of writing was in Scrubs. Mm. And I wonder for you as a, as a writer and a director, um, what was it like just being kind of constantly exposed to how other writers deal with that side of it? And then kind of, I don't know if that inspired you in any way or you kind of were taught any lessons by it? Well, I think you're right. I mean, First of all, I think I got Scrubs because Bill Lawrence and I just happened to have the, the same sense of humor. I was never good at, 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 at trying to sell jokes I didn't think were funny. And so when I happened to get the script for something that was my exact sense of humor, it felt like it was written for me. I, I just found my, my soulmate, and that's why I got it. And then as Bill and I got to know each other, yeah, I mean, he is, is the master of mixing humor and, and drama. If you look at episodes of Scrubs, they're 22 minutes long. We're doing a rewatch podcast of it, Donald Faison and I. So I've been watching them. And it's just insane how, how much, how he will break your heart and then do something so incredibly broad um, and, and tell a whole story of, of all these people in 22 minutes. So I did learn a lot from him. But also it was what, what I was drawn to as, as a writer, the way the storytelling I've always I've always liked movies that uh, are a mix of, of emotion and humor. Yeah, and the other thing that really stuck out to me about this was the fact that Allison's addiction is so tied to her trauma, mm. which I feel like is not a thing that I've seen people talk very much about when it comes to the opioid uh, epidemic. Uh, but it, I imagine it must be so common because obviously that's what they're often being prescribed for as people after traumatic incidents. Exactly. And then what happens all, very often is they get prescribed for a, a, a pain, but the the numbing is also very good for one's emotions. And then it's uh, what happens very often in the States is then they're, they're meant to be taken off of them, but people are addicted. So then they go buy them on the black market and then they uh, either buy them on the black market or they learn that the exact same thing, heroin, is way cheaper, and they switch to heroin. And this cycle is happening over and over and over and over and over again. And, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not the only person writing about it, obviously, um, but I, 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 I find it infuriating and, um, and, and fascinating. Mm, and and I've, I've noticed that when you talk about kind of entering into a script, you always start from a place of personal experience and yeah. then kind of grow from that. And I wondered for you, like, does writing feel like a way to learn more about yourself? I think it feels like a way to relate to, to other people, to find something that we all, um, there's some, if you find something that's very specifically yourself and, and find a way to talk about it, there's universal themes that that everyone can relate to, and they'll see themselves in in those themes. So that's what I try and do um, when I when I write is um, tell something that's very specifically me. Not always literally, but but something that I'm ruminating on, or or, or something that I'm uh, something that's very authentically um, a subject that I think about a lot, or 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 or, 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 or obsess about. 
and then find a way to tell a story with those themes um, with, with the hope that even though it's got specificity to me, that there are universal themes that people can relate to. Yeah, because I, I guess like there is an emotional through line, you know, from Garden State to Wish I Was Here to A Good Person, that they're all kind of about a protagonist who is unmoored by loss or like an incoming loss. And it's interesting that obviously you played the first two protagonists. Mm. Does it change your relationship to the movie to kind of write a character and then hand it off to somebody else? Yeah, I loved it so much more. Mm, um, that's interesting. Because I feel like it would be the opposite, that you'd feel a little bit more distant Well, my it. joke with playing the lead was always that the hardest thing for a director to do, I tell this to young film students, is the trickiest thing is that to make sure that you, the filmmaker, and your lead are on the same page and you're making the same movie. Because if you're not, the whole thing's fucked. So my joke with, with, with directing myself was like, I always got to remove the hardest obstacle because me and the lead were always on the same page with the, with the movie we're making. Hopefully. Um, yeah, we, were, we, we agreed on what to do. Um, but, you know, um, I, I think I have limits as an actor. I think I'm a, I'm a decent actor, but I'm not on the level of, of Florence Pugh, uh, for example. So to, to be able to take what I came up with and have it translated through someone who's on her level, um, I think made the whole thing rise in, in its quality. I mean, music has also always been so important in your work. I was part of the like group of people who got onto the shins after. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I feel like there was a lot of us. Yeah. They uh, were just touring, by the way, playing the whole uh, album. Really? Like they were playing that album uh, from start to finish. Oh, that's cool, because I have a weird thing where I, I just, like, I have lack of object permanence, where it's like all these bands I loved from my youth, I get shocked that they still exist, which yeah. is ridiculous, because they do. Yeah, they do. <laughs> they have to feed the yeah, families. <laughs> exactly. They have jobs. It's their job. Uh, but obviously here, Florence is writing her own music yeah. and performing it in the movie. And how did that help her understand her character better, or maybe help you understand her character better? Well, you'd, you'll have to ask her how it helped her. I, I think that um, it was such a it was such a gift because she's a very good songwriter, and not a lot of people know that about her because that that hasn't really broken through yet. But it will, I think, after this. And I, I was writing it for her, so I I had the idea very early on, you know, that she write the songs that the character sings in the character, you know, because Florence is is the kind of person that could do that. She could get in the headspace of the character and then write a song from that character's perspective. And I just thought that was really unique. There's not too many people who can, who can do that um, and, and have it be as, as, as good as it was. Would you ever consider doing a full-on musical? Because I know you've performed in one. I'd love to one. do a musical. I don't know how to write them, <laughs> but I want to be in one. I did one, you know, we, I did, well, I was in a Broadway musical, and which I loved. Um, we just did a, a commercial for, uh, uh, you don't have it here, but T-Mobile. Um, well, I don't know if you have T-Mobile here, but anyway, we did a, we did, Donald Faison and I did a commercial with John Travolta where we were singing Grease for the Super Bowl. And that was so much fun. And um, it reminded me how much I love uh, to, to do musical comedy. So I would love to do it again. I only have done one uh, Broadway musical comedy, but I, 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 it's on my bucket list to do another one. Because I guess when you're writing, 
you know, the, the musical has such a structure to it and you kind of have to build the emotions around the song. Yeah. You know, when you're a writer and director who uh, has such a relationship with the music you use, are you still kind of writing it with the structure in mind, like almost a musical structure? Uh, that's a very good question. But uh, no, when I write the script, I, I kind of will have an idea of where a song will be placed. Actually, in Garden State, I wrote I wrote them into the script, I would say, and then this specific song, and I was giving it to financiers. I would include, back in the day, I would include a CD of the script, and I'd be like, now play track two, um, so they could get the vibe. Now, not all of those were the exact songs that ended up in the in the movie, but it was a cool way to do it. I was copying another writer I'd seen who'd, who'd done that at the time, but it's a really clever, it was a clever thing to do because if someone really does it, they kind of get a score while they're reading the movie. It was, it was, um, it was cool. Um, in this film, I wouldn't say specific songs, um, but I would, but I would know that a really uh, uh, this this section here will be scored by a really killer song. Um, as you're writing, you kind of know where there's going to be a moment for a score versus where there's going to be a moment for a, a, a traditional song with lyrics. Yeah, and I, I guess Garden State, for me, like, that was such a cultural barometer. Like, I feel like it was, like, a moment in pop culture history, and I, I kind of wrap a lot of, like, the other culture around it from that time. Mm. And I, I wondered what it's like for you kind of looking back on it now. And, I mean, maybe this is a very big question to ask, but what you think it says about that era, or maybe just that point in your life? Well, I was very young, um, is what I think. is the first thing that comes to my mind. I was 25 years old when I wrote that. So I I think um, I'm proud of it. I, I, I couldn't believe it did so well, but I also see um, a very young writer who certainly didn't think as many people saw his film were gonna see his film. Um, and, and, and I had no idea that the soundtrack would, you know, it was, a, it was essentially a mixtape uh, of music I liked at the time. I, and, and then I won a Grammy. So it went be, way beyond anything I could have ever fathomed. Yeah, and I, if someone asked you, let's say 20 years from now, the same question about a good person, what do you think you'd answer? I guess it's hard to reflect in the moment, but... I don't know. It's all unknown. I hope people go to the theater to see it. It's it's. Um, I, I think it's. A, a, I'm really proud of it. Um, I think just for the joy of watching a, a really exciting ingenue opposite one of the greatest actors who, to ever live. Um, it's beautifully photographed by a cinematographer named Mauro Fiore, and I I just um, I hope that I hope that people go check it out in the theaters. That's what I hope. Yeah, and. I wanted to talk about, there's one other thing that really struck me about Alison. I wanted to ask why you decided to, to give her the job in the industry of the same people who are, well, who created and are fueling the crisis. That's a good question. Um, I, when I first got out of college in 98, a young woman I went to high school with told me what she was doing. And she was, she was a pharmaceutical rep, and she was a young, pretty woman, and she told me, she described to me in 1998 what her job was. And I remember thinking, this is so fucked up. Like, she told me she gets all the data, and, and she knows how, many, how often they prescribed it, when they prescribed the other drug. If she gets them to prescribe more, she gets a bonus. They get a golf trip if they, they get incentives. And this was long before 
uh, Oxy and 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 uh, Purdue, and I, I I just remember thinking, and and she she kind of in, implied there was some flirtation involved, and that they traditionally hire uh, good-looking women, and she buys the nurses sushi, and I just remember '98 being like, this is fucking nuts. So cut to um, 2021, and um, I just thought that it would be an interesting thing to have the character caught up in, even though she's not selling oxy, she's selling medicine for psoriasis, that the very, that, that the industry of itself um, kind of comes back to, to, to bite her in the ass. Um, um, it also gave her access to know someone who uh, was, was selling oxy that, that she could attempt to blackmail um, in that scene where she tries to blackmail her friend. Because that kind of links to I feel like what a lot of the characters are going through, this idea of like the justifications to the self. I mean, she's always saying it wasn't my fault, it wasn't my fault. And I guess there's the question of why is she saying that, right? What is she trying to I tell think that's herself? Good. I think that's the only thing that's keeping her alive, probably. Yeah. Um, to be honest, I think that the, that, that mantra and the Oxycontin is what's keeping her from taking her own life. And. One other thing I, I, I just want to um, touch on is, so you, you set a good this movie and also Garden State in New Jersey, which is where you're from. Mm. And it's also where a lot of my family are from oh, as wow. well. Uh, so I wanted to ask, I mean, how setting these movies in the places you grew up in, like, have helped you, I guess, like, work through your feelings about about. To me, it's not there? that. It's like, what can I, how can I write something that is so... Um, authentic and that I can truly tap into with everything I have and also um, write something with a, with a real specificity that only I could write. I, I don't want to write something generic. I, I hope that people see them, some aspects of themselves in these characters. But I, what I try and do is, is go, you know, it's, I guess it's a fancy way of saying write what you know. I, I know this town. I know what it's like. The town for me is, is special because it's a, it's a suburb, but there's a train that'll take you to the center of Manhattan in 25 minutes. So there's this world of people that stay there, and then there's, a, there's other people that get on the train and go have lives all over the world. Um, I don't know, I always found that unique to the town and, and, and interesting about the town. And, um, and I basically, I was just writing what I, what I know. I know, I, I, know the, I know the people that live there, and I also just, uh, I guess I'm, 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 I'm loyal to it. I, I, I like telling stories that take place there. Okay, so I'm gonna finish off with one silly question because I'm a huge Star Wars fan. Go on. And one of the things I love is is the fact that talent will just pop up playing like <laughs> voicing a random alien or stormtrooper, which obviously yeah. you did yeah. in Kenobi. Yeah. So how did that like how does that happen? How does that come about? Oh, how, very good question. Um, Deborah Chow, uh, I, I starred in her very first independent film that she ever made. Um, it was called The High Cost of Living, and um, and when she was awarded the uh, honor of directing all the episodes of Kenobi, um, we were having dinner, and I we, we caught up, and she said, "There's nothing really for you in 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 Obi Wan, but would you ever want to play like the voice of a creature?" And I'm like, "Are you kidding me? If I get to, I just want to come to set. I'll be a PA. I just want to see something on that scale in action." 
And she said, oh, I, I have this really cool uh, sort of cameo character for you to play called Freck. And he's a miner and he's a mole. And uh, you're going to wear this. I wore this. The puppet was such that I wore this rig on my head. And when I moved my mouth, the puppet's mouth moved. And and um, my vo I had a mic on, so my voice was projected so that uh, Ewan and the little girl could, could hear it. It was really just cool. And... So that's how it came about. Uh, Deborah wanting to, wanting me to find me a little cameo in Obi Wan. I love that because if I was directing Star Wars, I'd be ringing all my friends. Yeah, are you like, kidding me? Do you want to play Slug? Do you want to play too. Slug? Me too. <laughs> me too. Exactly. I, I, that's so fun, and um, and it's just cool to be somewhere in the in the in the Star Wars canon. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your my time. pleasure. It thank was you. So great talking to you. Pleasure. And congratulations again. Thank you so much. I feel like let's start this conversation with because Zach Braff wrote this for Florence Pugh. Um, obviously, we, like, we know that they were partners at the time, mm -hmm. that that's sort of why he did it, but like we're not going to get into the gossip because <laughs> we're not that kind of podcast. But, you know, I think this was like, this was very clearly him saying, I recognise that you are such a gifted actor and I want to give you like a performance that pushes like to the, you to the extent of the extreme of your abilities. Um, so do you think that, like, Zach Braff has provided Florence with, like, the ideal platform as an actor with this movie? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, Florence Pugh. I mean, I literally had to take a second out from watching the film to send you guys a WhatsApp to say, <laughs> guys, Florence Pugh is a phenomenal actor. I said that to my ice cold take because everyone has recognized this. She is in the conversation for greatest actor of her generation. Um, it is that impressive. And there's a couple of scenes in this where she just finds the soul of the character and bears it out in a way that just feels so authentic. You just can't help but wow at it. It's really, really special. Um, and it's even all the more special given the fact that for me, this movie is a case of really great, authentic, strong performances, none more so than Florence Pugh, meshed with inauthentic storytelling that gets more inauthentic the longer it continues. Um, and the fact that Florence Pugh is able to rise above that for the most part I think makes it in some ways even more impressive. Yeah, I hundred percent agree. It's like I, I'm, it's sort of unintentionally I think by him having given her this script that is like I, I think just doesn't really work. <laughs> the fact that she can take these quite like unconvincing lines and still deliver them in a way that sounds totally believable, not forced, mm -hmm. just like from the heart. Like, that is a better testament to her abilities than if the script had been, like, really strong. Yeah. Um, which I will say, like, I know people give Garden State a lot of flack. I do think the um, Natalie Portman character <laughs> uh, did create a hellscape for women like me. <laughs> but I thought that there's some really beautiful writing in that film, and there's some beautiful writing in Wish I Was Here. I didn't really feel that carried on into this movie. It just, like... I don't know. It just didn't, it didn't 
work even though there was stuff in it that did feel really raw and did uh-huh. feel very vulnerable and like open and honest there's also other i mean i don't i i don't know maybe we can cut this out if this feels like a spoiler but this is the kind of movie where somebody near the end pulls out a gun and you're mm. like where the fuck did that come from yeah. <laughs> and i won't say who does it in what context mm. but you know there's that sort of movie where it feels like the screenwriter like reached a point where they didn't know where to go so they go what if somebody just got a gun out um and yeah. it's it's that yeah it's that kind of movie it's, it's ludicrous that that entire scene <laughs> that entire setup is ludicrous and even stuff before then there's a conversation between two people at a restaurant and it's meant to be something that at least in one person's mind in the conversation and i'm guessing the screenwriter's mind is meant to be something that is the basis for healing between two characters yet the writing is so the opposite of that that it just makes me think like how in any way could this be construed as something that would be positive for the other person on the other side of the table and that's not the only scene in which i thought that um it's really really strange and just even and there's a couple of leaps of logic that you have to take as this movie goes on and I think like two thirds of the way through, it just kind of lost me. So the the granddaughter of uh, the father-in-law character, played by Morgan Freeman, um, she ends up striking up an unlikely friendship with Forrest Pugh's character, who was the woman in the car that killed the granddaughter's mother and father. That in itself is a logical leap that you have to make in order for this film to work. And even if you kind of get through that, there's other stuff that happens between those characters where I'm just like, this feels so deeply weird and inauthentic and it wouldn't happen like this. Like, why is this person messaging this other person? How have they they had this relationship now? It just felt weird. Not to say that it couldn't have gotten there in an authentic way, but the way in which this film chooses to take it, I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't vibe with it. Yeah, I think I, I didn't struggle so much with that relationship. I think the, the thing with this movie is it comes from a really interesting starting point, which is Florence Pugh's... Morgan Freeman narration. That felt like, oh my god, it's 2000 again. <laughs> um, but like this idea that that Allison, you know, there's a situation within within around the tragedy where there is a question of accountability yeah. and denial and accountability and like the idea of a good person, like what living with like a a refusal to look back on yourself, what that does to the psyche. Like that's a really interesting place to start. But I think I believed it more with the Allison character. I think her storyline, for the most part, I I liked, and partially probably because of Florence Pugh's performance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I found Morgan Freeman, Daniel Morgan Freeman's character, um, I found that just fundamentally just didn't I didn't work at all because there's a mm. question of accountability in his life, which has to do with how he treated his children. Mm-hmm. And there is a bizarre flipping in that character between 
like uh, the the cranky grandfather who's just trying his best and this <laughs> granddaughter and he's like you know the sort of character that morgan freeman has played a lot recently uh-huh. versus he has these speeches where he talks about like really fucked up stuff that he did and i think there's a total lack of like fusion between those two sides because those two sides can exist in a person but i think it's in both in the performance i found that performance that I didn't find believable, but also in the writing, just in, and I think that like broke a lot of the movie for me. Oh. <laughs> Cause like, that's meant to be such a fundamental part of like why Alison and Daniel have this sort of weird um, friendship that they form is cause they're, they're mirror versions of each other, but it's like, but they're not mirror versions of each other because it's so lopsided. Does oh. that make sense? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Um, and yeah, to you explain it like that, it is a good point. Like, they, they are, they're definitely trying to do that mirror version. And for me, in a sense, I got it because, you know, Morgan Freeman's character has been where Alison's character currently is in some respects. And therefore, that is why he's acting the way he's acting towards her. And you know, they have that sort of big scene after that ludicrous scene that we mentioned, um, in which some of that is borne out. Um, but yeah, even with all of that, and I still found there to be some authentic moving moments between them, mainly because of the performances. Even with all that, the film has to also battle against cliches and very unsubtle melodrama at almost every turn as well. Like when you have performers who are as talented as Florence Pugh, you can live in the subtlety a little bit. And from like the the overblown piano to the every when single when she's on like a drug trip and she looks at her reflection in the this mirror. This is it. Every single like, oh you know those cliches of this all there. And I'm like, when you have Florence Pugh, you don't need to go fully on that train. Um, and and they do in this film. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean. Yeah, I think that was the only thing I want to talk about. Some of the filmmaking choices were very, like, yeah. We don't need to do the, like, hazy... <laughs> <laughs> hazy camera work when she's... When mm. somebody's on drugs. Like, I... Yeah, we get We get it. Yeah. <laughs> we get what it's like to be on drugs. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's let's do our, our screen stream or skip for a good person, Amon. I'm going to say stream because Florence Pugh cannot, will not, shall not be denied. Um, she is just that good. And even though, you know, there were some issues with the character, as we said, I think Morgan Freeman, this is the best I've seen him in a long while. He feels like he's not, fun- he doesn't, doesn't feel like he's burning this in at all. Um, but even though, again, this film leads on the Morgan Freeman of it all with the opening and closing. We got Morgan Freeman in this film. We're going to have some narration because we have Morgan Freeman in this film. It feels like that a little bit. Um, so, yeah, stream. I, uh, I think I might say skip on okay. this, but maybe watch like the other movies. Like, bro, I liked those better. Mm. Um, except when Ali Portman was like, I'm going to make a sound that no one's ever made before. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really cursed scene. But I do think God of State has good stuff in it, and I will defend it. 
Um, okay, so from... Oh, my God. <laughs> wait. Oh, 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 wait, okay, okay. <clears throat> from Florence Pugh to Pew Pew Pew. Very good. It's John Wick, Chapter 4. I got mine, I hope you Challenging to single combat. If you win, you'll have your freedom. And when I see you, I'm gonna take what I want, so... Amen. Give me just a little bit more. Little bit of excess. Oh me, oh my. Give me just a little bit more. Oh <laughs> me, oh my. It's it's mother. It's mother, Rina Sawayama. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> That's a well, lot she... of really great needle drops in this film. When she turned up in this movie, I, I had to, I was internally screaming. <laughs> I love her. I'm obsessed with her. Yeah. <sighs> and she's so, so good. We will get into that in just a second. Uh, John Wick chapter four. John Wick uncovers a path to defeating the high table. But before he can earn his freedom, Wick must face off against a new enemy with powerful alliances across the globe and forces that turn old friends into foes. This is directed by Chad Stahelski and written by Shay Hatan and Michael Finch, and it stars the one Keanu Reeves, the one and only Donnie Yen, also Bill Skarsgård, Lawrence Fishburne. One of several Skarsgårds, <laughs> so not the only, but you know, we still, we love him. <laughs> Bill Skarsgård, Lawrence Fishburne, Hiroyuki Sanada, Shamir Anderson, Lance Reddick, rest in peace, oh. uh, Rina Sawayama, Scott Adkins, and Ian McShane. Oh, where to start with this movie? Let's not beat around the bush. The action. It is all about the action. This is action nirvana. At least, at least it was for me. Clarice, you were sat just uh, one seat away from me. You probably heard me being very, very vocal. <laughs> were you being vocal? Were you doing the action? No, because I don't. I'm not very. I'm not a very vocal. Um... <laughs> you must have really annoyed at me. I'm on show. No, no, I love. I love. <laughs> no, I loved. I loved the the reactions you were giving. They're amazing. I'm just more of like I'll just like clap my hands if I'm excited at something. <laughs> um, but I love. Oh, I could. The thing is, <laughs> there's a lot of conversation around the fact this movie is nearly three hours, mm-hmm. um, and this is the fourth one. And I realized at the end, I was like. I could just watch Keanu Reeves like headshot people for like ten hours. <laughs> Put make like an art installation, and I would just sit in there all day. It's so watchable, and the the like gun fu, like this mixture of like kind of like the Hong Kong cinema style of of martial arts and gun fu, and but like kind of I guess through a Western lens, mm-hmm. like the way that the John Wick movies do their action. It's so like beautiful to me because <laughs> it is really like dance. It's like dance. There was one particular reload Keanu did. I think it was like one point seven seconds. It was the smoothest, fastest reload I think I've ever seen this entire franchise. I just I was in awe of that. Um, let alone some of the other stuff that happens in this. You know, I tweeted <laughs> this week. You no know, zombie lines rules. You know, double tap, double tap, and they're dead. John Wick rules. I'm going to stab you four times in the chest. Then I'm going to slit your throat. Then I'm going to shoot you three times in the head. Then I'm going to chuck you down the fighting stairs. Maybe, maybe you'll be dead after that. But if not, then I'll go and stomp on you a little more. Like, my goodness, he goes overkill 
on a bunch of dudes in this. And one thing that I did like, especially even in that first hour, the grunts, if you will, the cannon fodder, even them, they're challenging now. They've got their own bulletproof suits. They've got their own really scary looking armor. So he has to sort of go to those really impressive lessons. This is just like a simple double tap like it was in the first chapter. It now, in some ways, has to be we have to make sure because these guys just won't stay down. So I gotta go stab, 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 shoot, 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 nunchuck to the face, anything. <laughs> and and that is, of course, very instantly done. It's also at every point, at every stage, it looks absolutely stunning. The cinematography, the neon, the lighting. Oh my gosh, it was just, it looked phenomenal at every turn. Um, I wanted to ask this though when it comes to the action i i know that this franchise has slowly gotten more cartoony for want of a better word but one thing that i did like about the john wick franchises in the earlier chapters is that they did have a touch of humanness about it if john wick was hurt he had to go to a back way doctor to get patched up that sort of thing here the man is taking huge hits He's falling from gigantic heights. And I know he's got a bulletproof suit on, but he's walking away from these things with nearly a limp. And that, for me, was a little bit... Uh, it, 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 I, there are times where I was like, okay, it's, it's funny, like with a certain stairwell sequence. And then there are times where it's just like, okay, come on now. This is a little bit too ridiculous. Did you have that dilemma at all? No, because I think the movies have earned that tone. Um, what I find, what I've always found very interesting about the John Wick movies, and I really enjoy about them, is that this, like, all that, all the sort of like mythology of the High Table and the Assassins of the Continental, like, has this very like religious aspect to it. Yep. Because it's all about codes and morals and like the rules that we write ourselves to live by, uh -huh. and so like especially chapter four, there's so much religious imagery uh -huh. in it. Like he's always going in cathedrals. Like I found it interesting that Donnie N character is called Cain, like yep. Cain and Abel. Uh -huh. um, like there's all these allusions, and so I feel like it's like it's sort of like John Wick is like like the Jesus of that universe, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, he's got the hair and he's got the sort of like inability to die. <laughs> um, like I, I, I sort of like the, the maximalized iconography of it. And like, you could have a conversation about like, v like the violence of the movies and like what it means to the characters, um, as a sort of like, I don't know, like inversion of faith. Um, I thought that was all, so I think like it kind of earns that, and and I think the look as well. Like it obviously doesn't take place in our reality <laughs> because it's in this like cool like everywhere is cyberpunk wherever yeah. you go. Um, and There's I love no police anywhere. And when yeah. you're all fighting in the club, people are still gonna dance. They're just like kind of annoyed. I like in Berlin. It felt very like it very German that all the dancers are like, oh, this is so annoying. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, and I want to shout out the cinematography by Dan Lautzen, who who also does all the Guillermo del Toro's movies. So that why there's a scene when they're in Paris where they're like fighting through an abandoned apartment. And I was like, yes. they could oh. just be fighting through Crimson Peak right now. <laughs> I, that's a crossover I want to see. Yeah. That's the one with the uh, sort of top-down shot 
uh, right? Which is just so that entire cool. sequence. Is that that sequence? And then there's a sequence where he's driving a car and drifting and shooting at the same time. Where I was just like, how? <laughs> how are they doing this? How are they doing this? looks so good. Um, yeah, let's talk about the performances a little bit. Keanu, I mean, the man is almost 60 years old and he's still doing the bulk of these stunts himself. Him and Donnie Yen. It's just insane. Um, and, you know, even though, as you put it, he cannot, will not, shall not die, no matter how many hits he sustains, um, you know, it's still, you're, you're wincing and you're ooing and you're ahhing at everything that he does. Um, it's very impressive. And Donnie Yen, <laughs> it's just, it's so funny to me. The man is so impressive and deadly that you almost have to give him limits in the characters he plays, whether making them blind or something else. And it still doesn't matter. He's still ridiculously deadly and incredible to watch. And here, I just loved some of the things that they did with that blindness and how he sort of gets around and how he navigates the world and how he fights. Even though he's blind, he's used sort of his other senses and other gadgets to sort of make up for that. And that is just awesome. There's a scene in the first hour where he's using these little alarms, he's planting them around the place uh, so, to, to warn them for when people might be nearby. And it's just great. Um, yeah, I, I love the performance. And I I just really enjoy Keanu's delivery. Like, the <laughs> fact that half is... His, like, they don't really give him very many lines in this one, and half of them are just him going, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's always this beat before he says it and it's yeah. so well done and it's just like what I think really works about John Wick through Keanu's performance is like because there is something very lovable about Keanu like on screen mm. like he could not play a full-blown because it's interesting that he was connected to Devil in the White City the Martin Scorsese movie about um oh fuck what's his face the the guy at the Chicago World Fair who was serial killing and killing everybody like a real life serial he was attached to play that role and I was like I'd be interesting to see him play someone genuinely <laughs> awful because even in John Wick like there's something sort of like self knowing about him and and yeah just kind of like you really want to root for him even though he's a horrible murderer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But you're like, yeah, John Wick. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, love that. Uh, Hiroyuki Sonada, uh, always great to see him pop up. Good things happen when that guy has a sword in his hand and the guy has a sword in his hand for a good chunk of this movie. Um, so that's great. So there's a scene when they're on a rooftop in Osaka and Rina is like talking to John Wick and then they're like, there's people, they're coming. And she's got like a kimono on and the way she fucking whips it off. Yeah. <laughs> and she's got a full like battle suit underneath. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> and like, then she got a, she had a bow and arrow and she was like, I'm obsessed. Yeah. I, I'm Please be in more things. Yeah. And she more was music. awesome. I love that reveal. That was very, very cool. One other thing that I did like, you know, you alluded to the mythology of this universe, which is really, really cool. There, even though there's not much plot to speak of, it's quite simple. Some of the dialogue and the writing in that respect is really, really great and has really stuck with me. You know, much of this film is about the nature of friendship and loyalty. 
And there's one line in particular, I think who Yuki Sonata's character said that friendship means little when it is convenient. Mm. And there's another line, mm. how you do anything is how you do everything. This is really, really good stuff. And I like that even though, you know, <laughs> the stories, the chapters have progressively, you know, gone more action of a story. Like I would say there's probably 80% action, 20% story, if that. Um, <laughs> and that is like, I think the most for this franchise that's, that's ever been. Um, there's some really powerful lines like that that really have stuck with me. Um, so yeah, I like that. Oh my God, we didn't talk about Bill Skarsgård's little sparkly suits. <laughs> oh, <yes. laughs> I also really enjoyed him. I thought he was a great villain. Yeah. And his French accent was terrible, but I really <laughs> enjoyed it. Every time he was like, Jean-Luc. <laughs> um, I think he was the perfect, like, he, he struck the perfect line between being totally ridiculous, but also actually quite menacing. So yeah. that was hard to do. Props to Bill, Bill Skarsgård. Very true. Oh, final thing I want to say, <laughs> I don't think anybody in the history of cinema has had more fun than Lawrence Fishburne does in the first two minutes of this movie. It is so amazing. <laughs> Honestly, watching this movie in IMAX where John Wick's sort of punching sort of, uh, a wall or whatever, and Lawrence Fishburne's dialogue. I mean, if that doesn't immediately settle you into this movie, <laughs> it's really like I was just cackling at that. It was great. You are now in the. Now, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not even going to spoil it. You have to go and experience this for yourself because, mm -hmm. on that note, it's time for our screen, stream, or skip recommendations on John Wick Chapter 4 Police. Screen and you know what? I'm kind of sorry. I don't think they're doing this in 4DX because I was so cool watching this in 4DX. Have my little butt shake every time Keanu's popping a bullet off his gun. Oh my gosh, man, your butt would be shaking a lot. <laughs> exactly, it'd be insane. Why didn't they do it? Oh. Uh, this is absolutely a scene for me. Uh, I have not come out of the cinema feeling this energized in a long time, uh, and it felt really good. Uh, we do want to talk a little bit of John Wick Chapter 4 spoilers, so if you have not yet seen it, and you want to, as you should after just listening to that glowing review, um, then maybe skip ahead to the next film uh, that we will be discussing. But I did want to take this opportunity to talk about Lance Reddick, who, uh, as we said, uh, passed away a few days ago, uh, kind of shockingly. Um, you know, he had, he had he'd been on the press tour for... John Wick Chapter 4, so you would have thought that everything was fine health-wise, but unfortunately that was not the case. Um, he is an actor who always delivered the goods, no matter how small the role. And John Wick is a testament to that. I think there's very few actors who would have been able to have made that first appearance in John Wick Chapter 1. And I think he has gone on record to say that he's only working for like one day on that movie. But you remember... Sharon and his interactions with John Wick to the point where the film workers were like, you know what, let's give him more to do in two. You know what, let's give him more to do in three. And I really love that. I love that. If you go back and look at his other roles in his career, uh, I got onto The Wire quite late. Um, obviously, when I did, Lance Reddick, incredible in that uh, I had used that, uh, <laughs> that gift. This is bullshit. Uh, <laughs> that line he has in that show quite a bit. Uh, which is a great line. Uh, my first introduction to Lance Reddick was actually Fringe, 
um, which again is one of my favorite shows of all time, uh, and his character. When it came to authoritative figures, he was one of the guys he just had to call. Um, and you know, a lot of the times when you're playing somebody like that, it takes it, it takes a lot of I guess effort to look effortless playing a, a guy who's that authoritative on screen. And Lance Reddick had that. It didn't feel like he was straining at all. It just felt like he was that dude. And he accepted no BS, and that was the dude. But also, and the Fringe was a perfect example of this, he had that heart and that warmth that if you were on the right side of things with his character, he would, he would have your back. And the relationship between Broyles, who is the character that he plays in Fringe, and Olivia Dunham, uh, who is the kind of character Anna Tor plays, is one of my favorite things about that show. When it came to John Wick Chapter 4, Obviously, the filmmakers couldn't have predicted what happened, what 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 would happen. Um, but even if Lawrence Fennick was still with us, I would still have issues with what happened to Sharon in the film. Because in my mind, what was lost was not equaled by what was gained from taking him out in that way. I think destroying the Continental would have been motivation enough for Ian McShane's character. And losing what you lose by taking out Chiron, that great relationship with both Ian McShane's character and John Wick's character, I love that. And I was hoping for more of that, especially given the stakes of this movie. So for him to go out in shocking fashion, and again, they couldn't have predicted what would happen with Lance would happen, but in the wake of his passing, just made me feel sad. When I think of what happened with Takuma Monda in Black Panther were kind of forever. Initially, I was going back and forth on that because I love that character so much. But taking out Queen Monda had massive effects and implications for the characters and for the story going forward. I can't really say the same when it came to Sharon in this film. And that's my main issue with it. If you're going to take out that character, you need to make it matter more than it did for the rest of the movie at least for me. I, yeah, I would agree, I guess, with the feeling, though, that because, you know, this seems like this will be the last one. Yeah. And I think, obviously, really sadly can't happen anymore, but I think in the minds of the filmmakers, Sharon was still going to be able to continue in other movies, right? Because he, Lance Reddick, will be in the ballerina movie, so he's going to have a role in that. Um, and I think they imagined that series continuing, presumably with him having a continuing role with that. So I think it was like, I, I, I think it sort of did work for me in the sense that this is the final one. So they're not really, they, they needed to have more of like, um, kind of a, sh like a shock fact because it was really shocking. Mm -hmm. And I think it got the point across of like how villainous this guy was, um, even in his fucking silly suits. <laughs> you know, like, I think they chose to do that because they wanted to have that sort of impact by uh -huh. by saying this is a really, like, loved fan character. It is just, like, it just feels really sad now just with what's happened uh -huh. outside of it because we won't get to see Sharon's story continue in other 
I mean, we are going to see him in Ballerina, but beyond that, not. I think get, um, the Continental is going to be a young Sharon. Yeah, so um, they're going to. So they'll have the character continue in other ways, but I guess we won't see lights. Like, yeah. <sighs> Bummer. But uh, Lance Reddick, uh, it's, a, it's a massive loss. Uh, yeah. he, he's one of those actors where you saw him styling in it and you'd be like, okay, at least that's one thing I'm going to like in this movie because he always lives. Because, case in point, they're releasing a White Men Can't Jump remake, which does not look all that exciting. And obviously, the first one was a classic. But, but Lance Reddick is in that movie. Uh, mm -hmm. So now, <laughs> you know. I'm probably going to watch it just for him. It's going to be one of his final performances now. And as always, I'm sure he's going to bring the goods. Uh, Clarice, is there anything spoilery that you want to talk to about John Wick Chapter 4? The dog. <laughs> <laughs> what so, about the dog? Look, well, okay, we're going to be talking about it. So John Wick died. The situation at the moment seems to be that, you know, Keanu and Chad... Oh, it's weird to just say Chad. <laughs> <laughs> um, have kind of in their minds have gone. Well, we kind of want this to be the last one, but they obviously, you know, if this becomes a massive success and the studio are like, please make more John Wicks, they want to leave that open. Which um, I noticed, and I will say, nobody believed me. <laughs> in the final scene in the graveyard. If you look at the dog, which was the dog that he got at the end of John Wick, right? The oh. little adorable little pit bull. I think he's called Boy. He doesn't really have a name. Um, the dog, there is a, a really hard cut to the dog looking off camera at something or someone. <laughs> <laughs> and then when they're walking away, the dog is looking very agitated. The dog keeps wanting to turn back for something or someone <laughs> um and i will say yesterday it was confirmed that that is intentional that they had filmed a different ending which i think the implication is that they filmed an ending where john wick was alive oh. um and they didn't it didn't test well but they had deliberately put the dog in as an indicator that john wick was maybe there at the graveyard at the gravesite <laughs> looking at his own gravestone because dog <laughs> dogs always know <laughs> um so i um feel really good about myself and i feel like i could be a detective <laughs> i am Benoit Blanc. put me in the next knives <laughs> i want to be i want to be the younger woman who gets you know how there's always like a relation the sort of like a friendly relation mentor relationship with a younger woman in the knives out movies make it me <laughs> <laughs> I would watch that. I would watch that for sure. They've definitely left the door open in a couple of respects because you have that with the dog. They have a scene right at the end of the credits with Akira and Kane. Uh, that is uh, Donnie Yen and Rina Sawayama's characters. Uh, and if you watch the film, you know that Rina Sawayama, uh, Akira, has beef with Donnie Yen. She makes a fatal mistake before the film cuts to black, which is that she uh, unsheaths her weapon essentially and that was just down yeah. like if you know if it's like the, the guy he has super hearing essentially he's gonna hear that and immediately react and be ready for the attack now um but you know that's if you know we see john wick chapter five or whatever they decide to call it who knows um but i mean respect that, to her but she's not surviving that she's not surviving if she walked up with the thing already unsheathed, she might have had the chance because Donnie's character in that moment, he is happy 
He's on his way to see his daughter. He feels like he's safe. He feels like he's free from the high table. He feels good. But then he hears the boom. He's like, hold on. I have to activate my badass mode. And he, yeah, so, so now it's like, come on now. But be smart, Akil. Be smart. That's what I'm saying. Um, one thing, final thing we have to mention before we move on from John Wick. Because we forgot to talk about him in the main body of the review. But Shamir Anderson, uh, as Mr. Nobody, he's sort of the, you know, un- the, 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 the kind of stealth MVP of this movie in some ways. He is really, really good. Uh, he is not the thing that I was going to see this movie for, but he is one of the real big highlights of the movie coming out of it for me. I really like his performance. He was great. Yeah. Um... I used to really like the dog performance. <laughs> like they got a really yeah. expressive dog, and they had such a beautiful relation. Like the scenes of just him and his dog together were like yeah. really beautifully acted on both sides. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, uh, two thumbs up uh, for John Wick Chapter Four. If it is the final uh, chapter in the franchise, they have gone out on a high. And speaking of going out on a high, we are going from baby Skarsgård to older Skarsgård for Infinity Pool. I don't understand why we're doing this. We barely know these people. It's one day. Let's mix things up a bit. You're just happy you found your fan club. I've been waiting six years for your second book. Is it coming out soon? I'm working on it. What do you do for money then? He married Rich. (laughs) I actually came here looking for inspiration. Dumb whores, best friends, infinity pool, yaha. Infinity guitars, which is in the movie Bling Ring, directed by Sophia Coppola, whose daughter was on TikTok doing TikTok stuff. I don't know if you saw. (laughs) She she made news somehow. She wanted to see her camp friend. Poor her. So this is Infinity Pool. While staying at an isolated island resort, James and M are enjoying a perfect vacation of pristine beaches, exceptional staff, and soaking up the sun. Guided by the seductive and mysterious Gabby, they venture outside the resort grounds and find themselves in a culture filled with violence, hedonism, and untold horror. A tragic accident leaves them facing a zero-tolerance policy for crime. Either you'll be executed, or if you're rich enough to afford it, you can watch yourself die instead. Written and directed by Brandon Cronenberg, it stars Alexander Skarsgård, Mia Goth, and Cleopatra Coleman. Uh, So we had a fantastic interview last week that Hannah did with um, Brandon Cronenberg. Uh, I mean... <laughs> Your delivery of Mia Goth just then, by the way, it made me chuckle. It's fantastic. I love her. <laughs> really? It, it, I, I can't tell. I just I can't tell, Clarice. Okay, okay, we're going to get to Mia Goth in a bit. But, <laughs> I mean, oh, God, I hate my. Um, I mean, uh, the thing is, I always feel really bad being like Brandon Cronenberg, his dad's David Cronenberg. But also, it's sort of hard not to compare the two because he has sort of... He's very much followed in his father's footsteps, let's say, (laughs) (laughs) in terms of, like, really delivering on body horror and and the psychological Freudian aspects. 
of it. I mean, did you did you watch Possessor or was it IMG Viral, the one that you did before? So this is your first Brain and Cronenberg. I think so, yeah. I really wanted to watch Possessor. That's the one with Andrea Riseborough, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, what was your impression? Yeah, it's like your first Brain and Cronenberg movie. What was your yeah. impression of it um, immediately? Yeah, I liked it. I thought it was a ride. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I have learned that sometimes, like, typically I like to go into a movie call without having watched any trailers, but sometimes it pays to watch trailers and be in with a little bit of an idea of what you're going into. Um, and this was one of those times where I did that and it helped, but it also didn't help because I was not prepared for uh, some of the visuals this film gives you. Um, but it was all in service to a really interesting story of what a rich person would, could, should do if they have zero accountability guaranteed, essentially. Um, and the places that it goes to in that regard, I think were really interesting. As I said, it's a, it's a wild ride. Um, and I'm sure we're going to get to the performances uh, especially the, the lead two performances, I think they're just absolutely sensational. I'm very, very, very committed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm gonna, okay, I'm going to hold back on what I want to say for a second because I want to ask you first. I mean, obviously, very popular at the moment are stories about, like, eat the rich. <laughs> and I feel like this doesn't, doesn't fall into that category. I mean, how do you think it compares to, like, Triangle of Sadness or Succession, I guess? Yeah. It definitely falls into that category for me. I'm not sure if it's saying anything especially new or interesting in that regard, but it absolutely falls into that category um, and distinguishes itself through its visuals and through that sort of sci-fi nature question, which is really, really interesting, as I said. Um, but in terms of, you know, what is it saying that's new, that's really adding to that subgenre of movies, TV shows that we've been getting, not a lot, in my opinion. Yeah, which is sort of like, I, I really like Brandon Cronenberg as a filmmaker, but I think my thing with this movie, I, I liked it a lot, and I think mm. he's, yeah, he's like really good at just making shit gross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's such a gross movie, and it's fun in that way, it's ridiculous, and I really enjoyed like the experience of watching it, right? movies where I wish there was a camera on my face and so I could just see my reactions to certain things <laughs> I'm sure my face was making some weird weird contortions at, at least one of the scenes in this movie because my gosh <laughs> weird stuff goes down yeah, some penises come out of places that penises don't normally come out of. But then I also wasn't really sure what that was coming out of. <laughs> it was coming out of something. <laughs> um, but I think, like, the, the where I stop, and this is why I kind of do have to compare, it, compare him to his dad, and I'm sorry to do that. Mm. But, like, Crimes of the Future... Sorry to bring this up. <laughs> <laughs> Crimes of the Future, I think the difference there is that there was such an interest in, in the curiosity in what like that film was dealing with like the implications of what that film was dealing with body modification like how will that affect us in the future what could we become what does that say about the human race and i feel like with infinity pool and and maybe a little bit with 
possessed as well. I don't think I've seen any Fire actually. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I feel like that's just the thing that's lacking, is that curiosity about the the ideas he's putting forward because I think you are right like this idea of like the rich that's you know they have when you have no moral boundaries you lose your humanity when there's nothing stopping you like you just become a monster it's sort of like yeah <laughs> and it's like it, the everything was so Freudian that mm. it wasn't it was too easy like I un, I think is this why I said that I understood it too much? Yes, which is a <laughs> statement that only you could make come out of a film like that. <laughs> but that's the thing, it, like, it does, it is very weird, but I think if you stop picking apart what the images are saying, oh. there's like, yeah, there's like, yeah, it's like penises and like, yeah, what is it, the reading of penal envy or whatever, penis envy, um, that stuff, and, and like, crawling on all fours with like a leash it's like oh an animalistic thing like it's like i i got it too easily <laughs> and i <laughs> i think that's the one thing that would have pushed this movie to be like i love infinity pool is if they'd just been a little bit more um meat on the bone intellectual meat on the bones oh. meat and nibble at <laughs> that's uh but i think Unless, I mean, do we want to just talk about the performances? Because we should definitely talk about the performances. <laughs> you talk about Alexander Skarsgård, and then I'll I talk about Mia. But then you can also talk about Mia, because we all want to talk about well, Mia. Well, thank you, Chris. That's so gracious of you. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, as I said, commitment. There's commitment to the bit, and then there's commitment to the bit. This is the latter. Um, <laughs> um, and yeah, Alexander Skarsgård. The man has range. Um, to go from a performance that's so alpha male uh, in something like The Northman to playing a bit of a dope, <laughs> <laughs> um, a very sort of insecure, uh, searching for validation in any type of way dope um, in such a convincing manner uh, is really, really impressive. And there's a lot of beats that he's asked to play and he does all of them very, very convincingly. That first scene where he sees himself die and he's almost watching it like a robot, but then you see the beginnings of a smile there as he slowly is pulled into this depraved world. Um, it's really, really good acting. And mm. the journey that he goes on, um, again, there's so many different beats to play from sort of this arrogance to being overly easy with the new scenario that he finds himself in and then in the final sort of act of it to just play again to go from something like the northman where he's like this alpha male to go to some place who's completely and utterly pathetic um is really really something um i thought it was great and i will leave it to you to talk about me god because i'm a gracious man you're, you're, you're so right about Alexander Skarsgård. It's like the what's scary about his character is how passive he is. He just sort of lets it happen to him, and you're like, yeah. you're not gonna say anything. Mm -hmm. Like that's I like I like that aspect of the character. Um, 
I am me. <laughs> just, <laughs> I just that scene. Like I know it's, uh, there's been a lot of chat about the stuff she's doing at Pearl, but the scene in Infinity Pool when she's on the back of a car with mm-hmm. wine was it a bottle of wine and a bucket of fried chicken, right. going Jamesy, <laughs> Jamesy, baby. <laughs> screaming at him is so funny and so frightening at the same time and i think it's like her like she's really tapped into something (laughs) like an ability to 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 have control over situation while seemingly not having control over it that's what i find interesting about gabby is that she seems like really like flighty and whatever just kind of a party girl um but then she's she's kind of operating the machinery the whole time and there's Uh a really interesting scene early on where she's talking about how she's an actress for commercials (laughs) of like yeah of like those stupid like um what are they called when you're in like tv shopping no, but it's a specific type of like phone this number to buy the mega sponge, yeah. <laughs> and she's the person who's like life just is unmanageable without this product, mm-hmm. and she's talking about how difficult it is to like look clumsy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh my god, she is like a Machiavellian genius. <laughs> That's so frightening. Yeah. <laughs> that whole scene was so great. Yeah, yeah, she is quite something again it's like she's being intentionally campy initially but the way that can spill over into just being scary and ruthless and all the rest of it again the journey that she goes on over the course of the film is really really impressive i don't know that, i don't know if there's anybody else who could have pulled that that title off uh to be honest uh, right now in the manner she does it's really something to see and she is carving out a really interesting filmography and sort of reputation for herself already between X, Pearl, and this film. Um, you know, there's a reason why last week I said I would not want to be in a room alone with her. <laughs> and things like this. I, I know it's acting, but just, wow. I need other people in the room when, if and when we meet. Um, because she scares me. Um, look, it's the real life Mia Goth is just like, um, I'd like to open a blueberry shop. <laughs> and it's like, that's what you find frightening. <laughs> look, if she can flip on the dime to something that's like we see in this movie, it's just like, man. Sure, wow. it's just the memories. The memories of Pearl will never leave you. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's jump to our screen stream or skip on Infinity Pool. What, what say you? Uh, screen, um, just prepare yourself for visuals <laughs> <laughs> and for weirdness. Um, oh god, I'm having trouble deciding. This oh, week. stop it, you're gonna say screen, Clarice. Well, <laughs> I, you know what? I'm gonna be a little controversial. I'm gonna say stream. Who are you and what have you done with Chris Lockley? Because clearly this is an imposter. Because are you a Pearl, clone? Because <laughs> Pearl is still out in cinema, so if you're going to watch a Mia Goth movie, you should watch Pearl first. That's why I'm saying stream. Prioritise Pearl and Ray Lane and John Wick. And then if you've still got time, sure, go see Infinity Pool. 
Are you the Kern or the real Clarice? That's what I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> like, sometimes the movie isn't weird enough. You know? <laughs> Again, only a statement Clarice can make. That's why we love you. <laughs> so, uh, before we go into hot take, I have I did another interview. God, I'm, I'm talking to people. It's weird. <laughs> I'm being social. <laughs> um, so, yeah, this is Breaking. Leave right now. The guy in the gray hoodie is robbing the bank. Who's in charge here? Well, she is, but we're both. I'm, I'm the manager. Estelle Valerie. Still, uh, once they leave, you lock the front and back doors, you understand me? You lock them all. Got the FBI, the GBI, everybody here. I'm sorry, okay? This is Sergeant Bernard. Is everyone all right in there? As long as everybody stays calm, nobody gets hurt. I have a bomb, and I'm gonna kill myself and everybody in here. My demands are not there. So yeah, this is Breaking. Living in a cheap motel in Atlanta and separated from his wife and child, former U.S. Marine veteran Brian Easley is desperate. Driven to the brink by forces beyond his control, the soft-spoken and kind man decides to go into a bank and hold hostages with a bomb. As police, media, and family members descend on the bank and Brian, it becomes clear he's not after money. He wants to tell his story and have what is rightfully his, even if it costs him his life. Directed by Abby Damaris Corbin from a screenplay she co-wrote with Kwame Kwe-Ama, it stars John Bayega, Nicole Bihari, Selenis Leva, Connie Britton, Jeffrey Donovan and Michael Kenneth Williams in, I think, not his final, but one of his final performances that we'll be seeing. Um, so, yeah, um, I mean, this is based on a, a true story. Brian Easley was a real person and um, we we talked about like her communications with his family because they're very involved in the production, which I found admirable because I think that that sometimes and quite often doesn't happen and I feel like it it's a very easy way to avoid being exploitative when you're talking about like stories as sensitive as this um so yeah I mean I think you can tell from the interview that like this was a really emotional experience for for Abby and like she's quite emotional in the interview uh so um I think like it is, yeah, it's such a, it's a really, really sad story and an incredible performance by John Boyega and also Michael Kenneth Williams. Um, so it was, it was really moving to hear her speak about it, honestly. Um, but yeah, please, please enjoy the interview. Uh, so welcome to the Fate of Black podcast. And first off, I just want to say congratulations on this film I sort of want to dive straight in with John Berger's performance in this because it is phenomenal and you know Brian in this film and you know in real life was a, a pretty introverted and quiet person who we're seeing at a moment of high distress and so I wondered for you as a director you know this movie is a thriller there's like an energy and attention to it how did you ensure that you created the space so that John could deliver like that performance. First off, spectacular powerhouse John that he is. Um, there's no way John could have turned up on that set without an enormous amount of craft behind him and delivered that performance. So there's only so far you can go as a director. He had the right tools, right? Um, 
and he was an incredible partner. He's a EP on this project as well. And he was instrumental in, in bringing the film to life. In terms of creating space for my actors as a director, I had to do it a little differently on this one because we're shooting at the height of COVID, which I guess you're, you're uh, required to, on every project, do something a little bit different because the story is going to be different and the demands are different, right? So for this, we're shooting at the height of COVID Delta, <laughs> which is, is a, you're tasked with keeping your team safe. That's first. And after that, then let's deliver the art and make sure that we do it in the most powerful way possible. So thankfully in this project, our leads needed to be separated. We needed to um, have Salinas and, and Nikki kind of on their own team and then John kind of on his over here. So it worked out for bubbling pretty well. Beyond that, I did two things that I hope and I believe made a big, big difference. One, keeping the set pretty clear of crew so that the actors could act against each other. And then thirdly, and this was extremely hard to actually make happen, Brian's on a lot of phone calls and there's a lot of times when it's just one person on camera and traditionally you would have an AD or a scripty or another actor out there who's not the actor they're acting against uh, the person on camera. But for this project, because we really needed to see the raw humanity, the honesty um, of the other actor, when we were writing, when Kwame Fireman, my co-writer and I were writing, I said, this has got to be the other actor on the other end of the phone, which means budget-wise, you're not just paying for the person on camera, you're paying for the person off camera every day. And you have enormous scheduling complications because instead of the actors, instead of Michael K being um, on set for five days, he's there for 15 <laughs> or whatever it is. But because each one of these actors were so committed, they were there for each other. John, when he He's on the phone with his daughter, Kaya. She's in the bathroom alone where normally it'd be me or the AD. John's in the bathtub and he's playing off of her. He's almost meeting her eyes. So it feel you feel the honesty of it. And he has about, you know, two feet to squeeze himself into the bathtub because we've got camera gear and lights and then another camera. But there was no um, ego to it. There was no, you know, I'm... Um, this is my space. It was all about like, let's just find the purest point of the art. I mean, you mentioned um, Michael K. Williams there, which this is one of his final performances. And I feel like it is, everything he said is such a testament to his craft. And I wondered if you could just talk a little bit more about building that relationship between his character, Eli, the, the hostage negotiator, and Brian, which, as you said, is a relationship that takes place just totally over a phone call or a few phone calls. Well, there was very little time to actually rehearse. Mike and I met over Zoom. We built a pretty common language quickly. It was so important to cast an actor that you can communicate with 
or that can communicate with just his voice. Mike has this voice that sounds like honey mixed with gravel. It has this gravitas to it. And he has, similarly to John, just an incredible amount of empathy. And he really harnessed that. In the early conversations between him and I, he told me stories. He told me why he was there. He told me about uh, his personal encounters with Brian's in his life. And he wanted this story told so that those people would know they're not alone. And I'm just enormously grateful for that gift. Yeah, I mean, it's so clear that this story, this movie, this experience really resonated with you. And I I think like what really struck me about this film and, and what I found like challenging about it in like a really good way um, and what I think is remarkable about it is that you take all of that pain and that reality um, but you're kind of placing it within the genre of the bank heist movie and in that way kind of subverting the genre and I think it, it feels more confrontational because of that and I, I wondered whether that was that was kind of always your direction from day one is like I want to kind of play into this just to to kind of get people's attention. Yes. We knew that we were subverting a genre. We just didn't know if people would notice or not. <laughs> so it's it's really lovely to hear you say that because it's extremely hard to do. Well, it's extremely hard to make something look very simple when it's not at all. I love that genre of film, but when and, and you look at the catalog of film history, right? It seems like Americans love it too, specifically. Um, and when I was writing this with Kwame, we had already kicked off writing. We knew the direction we were going. And then George Floyd was brutally murdered. And the streets outside my window were flooded with protests as, as um, so many streets around the world were. But the other thing it was flooded with were tanks and guns and just this intense militarization that reminded me so much of what we're doing in film. And we really had to show that for one man who just wants a conversation we're building up an army around him and it reminded me so many ways of uh, an emotional level we kind of build armies around ourselves and we don't actually hear uh, we use excuses of fear and um shame even to just not hear to not see and in 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 a filmic sense I felt that that genre would be able to showcase that um, that frenetic fast pace of a thriller 
then contrasted with the very slow truth of what was going on in Brian's soul, of the the of being ignored, of being not heard, that layer upon layer. It's so everything you said kind of reminds me of something that I it's a really small detail that I I was thinking about watching the movie. Um that Brian and his daughter are talking about Lord of the Rings a lot throughout the movie. Um, and I know that his love for that book is mentioned very briefly in the Task and Purpose article that this film is kind of drawing from. Um, but to me, I was like, my gosh, like there, everything you, you just said, like it's, it's sort of the same deal with that book. Like those themes are there and there's a link and, and, um, I, I was like, this is, it felt surprisingly poignant to me, the, the choice of that book. And I, I wondered um, why you just picked up on that detail. Because I think the article mentions a, a bunch of things about his private life, but I was interested in why that was the one that you really picked up on. Brian's wife, Jessica, mentioned as well when we were speaking with her about his love of literature and how he was so different from the rest of his family in that sense. Like he was always the one in the corner reading. I love that he loved Lord of the Rings. I love Lord of the Rings. John loves Lord of the Rings. Like we are both kind of geeky in that way. And it's not just geeks. It's this film is uh, the, the, the books, the films, the, the show, they're for everybody, right? They're for, they speak on such a soul level that it talks about the things that opens your soul up, right? That really, really matters for a person. There's a quote in Lord of the Rings that when I read the article at first, I was reminded of, and I'm, my brain is is reaching for it now. So forgive me for not quoting it perfectly because uh, it's just not percolating in the way it should. But it basically says, I think it's a line from Gandalf where he says, You can't control the tides of the world, right? You're not responsible for the ocean. You're not responsible for the ground um, that other people till, but you can till your own. And you can incrementally, one day at a time, one action at a time, make the world around you purer, truer, honorable, more just, more noble. And the reason that we resonated, and I say we because this film is not told in a silo, it's not just me. Um, the reason we so strongly resonated with Lord of the Rings is because you feel that longing towards justice, that longing towards peace and purity and wholeness in Brian's voice, in his story, in his righteous rage, when he walks into that bank and says, I wanna be heard. I want my money. I want the people that I fought for to have their money. I want my daughter to have a pure, more just, more holy world. And he knows it's not right what he's doing, but he's, he's tried all of these things that are right. And he's at his end. And there's so many mental complexities to unpack um, within that. But I do believe he knew where, what he was doing when he walked into that bank. And he longed for that same pure-hearted justice that he found in those books. Mm, I mean, everything you're talking about is so beautifully bringing it back to this, to like Brian as just the very 
center emotionally, gravitationally. Um, and, and you mentioned um, talking to his family members, um, which I I know it's, it's a thing that comes up a lot when there's movies based on real issues of like how much do you talk to the people involved? How much do you get them involved in the production process? Um, just for you, speaking for yourself, like what do you think is the... I guess I want to say like level of care that filmmakers have in in that regard. Situational. In our situation, I hate the word situation for this. It's not a situation in, in Brian's story. He's got a daughter who's a pretty young teenager. She's 13, 14 years old now. And she's going to watch this film someday. And he's got a wife who still deeply, deeply loves him and would have been with him, but for the mental complications that he had and, and the, the boundaries that she needed to put in place to have a healthy family. So for our team, we came at it from a place of deep respect for that, knowing that this was a man who needed to be portrayed from love by the people who loved him from their point of view. So we wanted to honor telling his story from a place of love. There's so much trauma in the world. There's so many stories that are told from trauma. And although for us it was, and for Brian, it was very important to have his story heard. We wanted it to be told from a place of love. Yeah, and I, I just like I, I want to thank you so much for for making this movie, and for for getting his story out there. Because I know, you know, reading interviews with John, he said that he hadn't heard about it um before getting on the project. Um, and also I, I just want to thank you for being so like open and vulnerable today. Um, so thank you so much for your time. Uh, and congratulations again on the film. Thanks, Clarice. And now this time for our. Here was our sister, Alaplet. Um, so yes, uh, the reception to both Ant Man and the Wasp: Colon Quantumania and Shazam! Exclamation mark! Fury of the Gods. Very, very important punctuation, people. Um, has not been great, shall we say? Uh, mixed reviews not very good at the box office um and it's got people wondering has the shine of superhero movies worn off uh this is not a new question this is a question that the uh discourse feels compelled to ask every few movies or so um and i get why that question has popped up again but these were never the two films for me that were going to be a really strong indicator of superhero fatigue. Because even if you look back, I mean, Shazam, the first movie, was very much well-received. And I think at the time, given everything that was going on with the DCU and the, the, the darkness of the storytelling, it was a breath of fresh air. Um, I mean, Shazam, Fear of the Gods, part of the reason why maybe it's not being as well-received is because it kind of forgot about what made it unique and not forgot about, but it just decided to go in a different direction. Um, 
was Ant-Man and the Wasp. It wasn't fun. <laughs> I, had, I had some fun with it. Sorry. sorry. Um, <laughs> opinions are welcome here. Even the wrong ones. I'm joking. Um, but, uh, yeah. Um, you know, talk to me again after The Flash, as problematic as that film is, for reasons I'm not really going to. After The Flash is released, The Flash had like three Batman in it, and one of them is Michael Keaton. That movie's probably mm-hmm. going to make money. Um, Guardians of the Galaxy, one of the strongest, most consistent, most beloved franchise in the MCU. If this was, if, if those two movies had come out and had been getting mixed reviews and had been getting mixed in box office, then maybe I'd be a little bit more worried about the wider superhero fatigue taking hold. But they have not come out yet. Talking about Ant-Man and Shazam, who were you know, B-list, C-list characters before they were brought to the big screen. Um, and, you know, granted, they have not done well. So Guardians. This is true. This <laughs> is true. But I think Guardians hit in a way that Ant-Man and Shazam never hit. Um, and, again, it's become one of the most beloved franchises in the MCU, even though I don't think uh, the second one I don't. I think it's a very mid movie, to be honest. I think the first one was great. The second one, nah. Um, but I, I have every confidence in the third one is going to stick the landing. Um, I know James Gunn really loves these characters, and um, this next one, he's already sort of you know, primed the audience by saying, you know, people might die. Um, it's is... the raccoon. I, it's <laughs> going to be Rocket. Did yeah. you see how sad he looks in the trailer? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. 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 <laughs> But yeah, like if those movies come out and we're still sort of having this same sort of conversation, then maybe I'll be like, huh, this is a bit concerning. I've already said with Quantumania, I'm a little bit concerned about Marvel, you know, especially just, you know, just had this Victoria Alonso episode now, just adding onto the pile of stuff, which is the issues of Marvel right now. But I just, I remember going to that multimedia screening and the end credits came up. And for the first 10 seconds, there was just silence. And not like stand, Infinity War silence, just silence. And that, I have not gotten that in any Marvel multimedia before. And, you know, I've, I've, I've been on record as saying Phase 4 has been very, very meddling sort of all, all across the board with one or two exceptions. So, you know, they've got to sort a few things out. Obviously, I think DCEU have been needing to sort things out since 2013. And they're still <laughs> on that sort of things out train. So, you know, I on on one hand, I get it, but I'm not all the way worried yet. I'm not all the way off the superhero train yet because I'm such a nerd. I may never, ever be all the way off the superhero. I'm, <laughs> I'm just one great form away from being back on the train. Um, but yeah, I've handled on enough. Police, what say you? Yeah, I, I agree, like, mostly with what you're, you said I think my position on it is that when we talk about this phrase superhero fatigue, I think because it's so driven by online discourse, it has to, you know, it's been divided into the two camps of like people who love Marvel movies and everything and D- Marvel and DC do is perfect and great. And like people who think they are the literal like demonic <laughs> presence on earth. And I think, you know, the truth is, the reality is, is always somewhere in the, the middle. And I think with the idea of superhero fatigue, I don't think about it as like 
the the audience has turned on superhero movies and they hate superhero movies and they never want to see one again i think that's ridiculous mm. and you're so right the stuff like the flash guardians of the galaxy like there will still be comic book movies that make a ton of movie a ton of money and are really popular and loved um but i do think recently we are seeing i think what's happened is that in this very like hollywood capitalist thing to do is if you look at both marvel and dc they they just like they went too far with production and they uh-huh. were just like we are getting to the point especially marvel with the tv shows and uh-huh. the amount of content they're putting out i think like that is the core issue and it's having a knock-on effect with dc as well um who i you know have been putting out less stuff but i think there's still been this like rush in production of like just uh-huh. make the movie and get it out and then we make the next one and we just keep going we keep making money i think uh-huh. that's why shazam and ant-man didn't do as well because it's like there's not enough kind of like time around these movies and there's not time to promote i feel like these movies were barely promoted because there's another one in, in two months and we gotta go and i think that's what people are responding to that maybe they're starting to crave a little bit more diversity in what they want to see because they they just they don't want to just be (laughs) exposed to superheroes and have all the stuff all the time which i think is maybe we've seen other movies like john wick you said was already it's doing really well at the box office Uh it's like horror movies have been doing really well at Uh the moment i would be really interested in seeing how well dungeons and dragons does mm-hmm. next week because that's so a different vibe mm-hmm. <laughs> but a massive still like a massive like fun family friendly blockbuster that the same people who go see marvel stuff can take their families to see um and i'm hopeful that and i think like the putting james gunn and peter saffron in charge at dc is is reflective of this i'm hopeful that both marvel and dc are gonna start taking the time to go Okay, like, what are we actually putting out here? <laughs> like, it, it, oh, what are these individual movies that we are making and how are we, like, catering those to audiences and promoting those to audiences as opposed to just, like, turning it into a funnel, like a t-shirt cannon that they're, like, blasting these in our faces, <laughs> going blah, blah, blah. And it's interesting as well that the Marvels got delayed, which uh-huh. I think could also be, I think, a quite positive indication of Disney going... Okay, maybe let's slow down a little. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's not just like fucking, and then you know, take more time to finalize the VFX. Take mm-hmm. more time to write the script. Take more time to film the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm yeah, I'm hopeful. Or it's gonna be that thing Steven Spielberg always talks about, where a movie. Have you heard about this? That I find really interesting. He said it in an interview once that he predicts there will be a moment where a movie that has had so much money put behind it is gonna bomb so badly that it's just gonna like fully collapse (laughs) the industry as it stands now and it's gonna have to reshape around that i think either one is gonna happen i think either these studios are gonna learn their lessons now and reshape and just start rethinking and and slow down production a little bit um or we're gonna get to what's kang dynasty is that the first one that's gonna get rushed 
and it's gonna bomb so fucking hard <laughs> that <laughs> everything's just gonna topple or i'm you know i'm saying marvel's gonna do it maybe dc um the first movie they put out is gonna fucking bomb so hard <laughs> that like it's radically gonna change it but i don't know i don't i'm like i can't see into the future but i also trust steven spielberg so i don't think he is a hundred percent implausible by predicting that it's definitely not a hundred percent implausible um i'm very hopeful for the first film of uh, james gunn's dc era because it happens to be superman and we've needed yes. a fantastic superman movie in the modern era for a long long time as good as henry cavill is i don't think any superman appearance he did gave that to me um and so i'm hopeful that the direction that james gunn chooses to take that character in feels authentic and feels right um i say that there's a show called superman and lois which is airing right now starring tyler hecklin as superman it is fantastic it's annoying to me that more people don't know about it and aren't showing it love the first two seasons are on bbc iplayer right now please go and seek it out it is so well done it is exactly in many ways exactly how superman should be portrayed because the thing with the Henry Cavill of Superman and the thing that Tiny Hecklin gives you, when you see Superman on screen, when he's doing what he's doing, you should feel safe. You should feel warmth. You should feel like, okay, Superman's here. Everything's going to be okay. You didn't really get that with Henry Cavill because... <laughs> I didn't feel person, safe at all. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> if your name wasn't Lois Lane, good luck in those movies. Um, Superman and Superman and Lois, again, one of the things that I love about it, not to harp on too much about the show, but he is a worldwide presence. He will be in Russia one second, in China the next, and when he pulls off his save, he's not just pulling off his save and leaving, he's making sure with a look, with a wave, with a smile, hey, you're gonna be okay, everything's fine. And the reception that the person who saved gives, like, it, it makes you feel the way you should feel when you see Superman on screen. And I hope that whatever direction James Gunn takes the character in, we get that. Um, your point about the diversity of what people want to watch definitely rings true to me because I think three of the biggest success stories of the year so far have just been in this, just been in this month. Scream 6, Scream mm. 3, and what was the other one? John Wick. Like, the reviews have been great and the box office, especially for Creed, um, has been fantastic. Oh, I like, didn't it's, know it's, it did well. Oh, that's it's, great. It's, it's the biggest um, sort of opening international weekend in the history of the Rocky Saga, which Good is incredible. Three. You know what I'm saying? It's incredible. <laughs> and yeah. it's the film which doesn't have Rocky in it, which just makes it even more incredible. Um, so that definitely uh, um, uh, rings true to me. Um, but yeah, I I think that I'm hopeful again that the quality level of the Guardians and a Flash is going to be matched by the sort of big box office that we are accustomed to seeing uh, from these big franchise movies. Because um, when they're done right, I still love them. Um, you know, again, it hasn't been in terms of the overall cinematic experience. Spider-Man: No Way Home. That film has its issues, but I came out of that cinema bouncing. And obviously that movie made, made, made on, went on to make all the money and 
everything else. Um, I have not had a superhero film experience that has given me that reaction since then. Not even Wakanda Forever, as much as I really like that film. There's so much sadness and heaviness with that mm. film that you can't really come out of the cinema feeling that way. Um, I'm longing for another cinematic super experience that gives me that feeling. Um, because it's the best. Like, you know, for as, I think part of the reason why you know, it's going to be very, very hard for me to fully go off the Marvel train is because some of my favorite cinematic experiences have been because of them. I remember watching Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame and the first Avengers. I remember those first time watching those films for the rest of my life. Like, that was incredible for me. So mm. I'm hopeful they can get back to that at some point because that would be awesome. I have a question, like, because I feel very neutral about it. Kang, this Kang Dynasty, because that would presumably be what they're building up to is mm-hmm. the next like Infinity War Endgame yeah. level like everyone's in the cinema cheering and screaming kind of mm-hmm. thing do you think are you hopeful that it will be like that I mean I don't even know who's going to be in it so yeah um, nobody knows at this point I'm hopeful but I have to say the more I think about Quantumania the more issues I have with it um, I'm not sure if we said it on the pod that we did but the ending of Quantumania I think was a really dumb decision on many levels, um, and it has uh, not just for the film itself, but for the wider MCU going forward. Because you're building up Kang as this Thanos-esque villain, who's this bad guy who could end everything, and at the end of the day, you have him defeated by ants and ant people. Like funny, even <laughs> if people took Ant Man seriously in the Avengers sort of you know real world. And Ant-Man says, look, there's this guy called Kang. He's a really bad guy. He can end everything, but I, I think I stopped him. Shouldn't be supposed to be okay, but he, how, how, how difficult can he be to take out if you stopped him? You're Ant-Man. I mean, <laughs> not mm. being, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be too disrespectful because, you know, ants, you know, whatever. But come on! <laughs> he's, he's one of the lesser Avengers. Thanos in Infinity War, in the first 10 minutes, he's with Thor. He whipped Hulk and he killed Loki. Those are three of the most powerful beings that we had seen in that universe. And, and Kang is defeated by Ant-Man. And we're meant to be afraid. And this version of Kang, by the way, is like so scary that his variants sent him off away because they were afraid of him. That's how deadly and dangerous this version of Kang is. And he's beaten by Ant-Man. And <laughs> the thing is with that movie, like, why not? And it would have worked for both the movie and wider MCU storytelling. Why not have Kang get out and leave Ant-Man in the quantum realm? Because then you have the consequences that that film sorely lacks. And you got Kang out in the real world beginning his conquest, maybe sans his army, but he's there. That's interesting. That's really cool to see what happens in the future. Now, it's just like, you need to build up Kang all over again in another separate movie with a different variant and one that we're not, so we have to sort of meet and get to know again. I think that they set themselves back a little bit in the beginning of this overall Kang Dynasty, so, Which I think actually circles back to the thing of, like, with Marvel and DC that I think there has been a real lack of future 
planning, which is what's been so nice about seeing James Gunn and Peter Safran going, here are the movies we're releasing. This is the reason we're telling these stories. Mm -hmm. Like, I really liked that when they did that presentation, they yeah. pitched each movie, which, like, I find noticeably, like, Marvel, when they do Comic-Con, they don't tell me what the movie's going to be about. <laughs> They're just like, it's going to be the Marvels. There's going to be three characters. I'm like, what are they going to be doing? What's the vibe going to be? Like, I think, um, you know, and this is not me being like pro DC or whatever. I'm just, <laughs> just pointing out, like, I think that's the thing that really needs to change is like a focus on both what the individual movies are doing and also how if you are going to make an interconnected universe how the fuck does it interconnect because i don't understand and this is true of marvel and dc i don't understand anymore mm. i'm fully lost <laughs> on all <laughs> levels which is why i think partially i just like i'm like i'm just gonna have moon knight because he doesn't do anything <laughs> with anybody else and i hope he doesn't turn up in kang dynasty because he's gonna then have to talk to other characters and i don't oh. want that <laughs> <laughs> just don't tell him about Keg. Oh, don't dear. tell him about Keg. Leave him alone. I mean, <sighs> nothing else I can say can top that. So on that note, <laughs> thank you for tuning in and happy viewing by whatever medium is the safest for you. Subscribe, rate, review the podcast that makes a difference and tweet us any questions or hot takes. At Fade to Black Pod on Twitter, kind of two was quested to deliver a podcast and deliver the podcast we have uh i am <laughs> i am at among woman on twitter and instagram and i am at clarice Lou on twitter and at clarice lockery on instagram farewell film friends it's time to fade to black mm -hmm.